everyone. Welcome back to the Channel Your Influence podcast. I'm your host, Diane Taha, and today we have Eileen Louis from the blog and podcast, Baller on a Budget, to talk about a topic we don't talk enough about, money, consumption, capitalism, fast fashion, and much more. So I met Eileen through Instagram several years ago, and she is one of my favorite content creators. She keeps it real, isn't afraid to share current events, mental health, political topics on her Instagram. She's one of the real ones, so I had to bring her on the podcast. So welcome, Eileen. Could you um, introduce yourself and talk about how you started Baller on a Budget? Yes, of course. Thank you also for having me, Diane, on this podcast. Um, As you may know, my name is Eileen. I run the Baller on a Budget. I've been doing this since, I think, 2016 or 17. It's it's crazy how time flies by. You know, the Baller on a Budget is a lifestyle budget blog. It's geared towards helping women build their dream life on a budget. Um, You know, I came from a working class family of first generation Filipino immigrants, like before I was born. I was born in New York, but my family was already a family of five. They basically came here with basically nothing. Um, They didn't have a lot. My mom, you know, she had to raise four kids once I came along. And so she was a stay-at-home mom. You know, my dad worked full-time as a nurse. So having a pretty sizable family living on one income, you can imagine we didn't have a lot. And as I grew up, you know, it's it's this weird place. I'm, I'm sure that you can relate. You know, if 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 anybody who's listening to this is, you know, a, a child of immigrants, you know, I feel like the way that you get brought up in America is going to be so different. You're just kind of wedged in between two different worlds. You have your American world and then you have the culture that your your family came from. So when I grew up, you know, I was in the suburbs and um, my parents, you know, tried to put us in proximity to good educational opportunities. So when I was a kid, I would go to like magnet schools. You know, these schools had, I guess, more opportunities than other other kids. So I don't I don't know how else to explain it. But it, it you know, like um, the education was was better quality, um, and there were more like after school things available to students, and everything just felt more hands on. So. You can imagine that it kind of magnetized kids who came from wealthier homes. So when I was growing up, you know, through this education system, I was around children who had more than me and I made friends with kids who had more than me. And I was constantly feeling really left out because whenever I would hang out with my friends, you know, they they would get the newest things. They would get cars at, you know, 16 years old for their birthday, like convertibles, you know, they would get cell phones at like 12, 13 years old. And I was constantly feeling like I was left behind. And that was just kind of a theme that continued to like, just be consistent throughout my life. You know, I became an adult, you know, I worked three jobs when I was 16. I, you know, like on my birthday, I went and got a job. And then, you know, in my later teams, I went, I went up to having three jobs at the same time. So I was always working and it was really frustrating because I felt like I was working so much harder than the people around me to just be on their level. And that progressed to, you know, trying to buy, you know, really nice things, you know, buying designer stuff when I was like in my early 20s, which was not sustainable for my budget. But I wanted so badly to keep up with a world that explicitly wanted to leave me behind because I was a working class person. And so, you know, just going through all of these financial struggles in private because it was such taboo to talk about money and to talk about, you know, having financial crisis and, you know, not being able to afford things. It it just made me really think about, you know, there's something wrong here. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's going through this, but everybody is so scared to talk about money. Everybody is so quick to shove, you know, all of their luxury goods in your face and kind of, you know, show to the world that they're doing so well. But when it comes to their actual financial situation, we stay hush hush about it. And I wanted to create an online space where people like me could feel like it was safe enough to discuss and, you know, connect with other people who could relate to me to relate to this kind of struggle and to feel a little bit less alone. Because, you know, if we don't have community, it's really difficult to go through hardship of any kind. So when I built Baller, I was expecting that you know, I would create this, you know, community of people. And that that's what I did. Um, we get lots of 
emails and messages and DMs all the time of people saying, you know, like your transparency is what has inspired me to take control of my life, you know, to say no to expensive things that I noticed that I didn't even want in the first place. I just wanted it because society told me that I wanted it. So it's become a really empowering brand and space online for people. And I'm hoping to really just kind of expand and expand and expand so that we can have a community of like hundreds of thousands of people and just create this new wave, not only just conscious consumption, but also learning how to say no to keeping up with people like the Kardashians. So that's basically my origin story. No, I can relate so much to that because, you know, as you know, like as in an Instagram content creator, we're always trying to chase the newest, shiniest thing. And, um, you know, full disclosure, like I went into so much debt buying handbags that I shouldn't have bought because I couldn't afford it on my paycheck. And, you know, luckily I was able to like pay down some of that debt over the pandemic because I wasn't trying to uh, consume as much last year compared to the prior years. But yeah, no, I can relate to that. And I'm also the child of immigrants and the oldest of four girls. So are you the oldest of four girls? I'm actually the youngest. So that's oh, the youngest. Yeah. So how do you feel like that is um, like shape your spending habits? You know, it's really interesting. Um, I feel like when, when my parents lived in the Philippines, they were not well off. I feel like for the most part, a lot of people know that the Philippines is it's, it's, it depends on where you go, but from where my parents were from, it was very impoverished and they wanted to come to America because, you know, they believed in this American dream. You know, everybody said, if you move to America, you will make it big. And so they literally came here with just the clothes on their back and their three children. And it was really difficult for them um, because they had to really stick around people that they kind of knew, which was they didn't know really anybody here. And they came from, again, nothing. And I think constantly being in that state where everything was just such such a struggle to obtain money you're only working you're only thinking about tomorrow right um my parents worked really hard to ensure that everything all of our needs were met all all me and my three sisters um but there was never room in the budget really for anything else so i feel like that's definitely kind of shaped this kind of um like i guess scarcity mindset is mm-hmm. what a lot of people tend to say because i was constantly scared like are we going to be able to have a roof over our head next month? Um, There were lots of arguments about money in our household. So it was very catatonic. And then just kind of seeing how every single time, you know, I asked for something from my parents, they worked really hard to provide for us. But when it came to things like toys or it came to things like electronics or computers or things like that, the answer was always no. Um, So I got really, really used to the fact of knowing that this world was not going to give me what I wanted. And I just had to work extremely hard, which is I feel like a lot of people, you know, who are working class can really relate to that is you have to work so hard and just just to be on the same level as other people around you. And, you know, that that's really the way that it shaped how I look at money. Not only was I resentful, but I was also very confused. I just didn't really understand how and why money, like, why does it work? Like, what is the point of it? Why do we have to use like currency? It made me feel like because I had less money, I was less worthy of being seen in this society. Like I felt like I was invisible. So I just, I had a really unhealthy relationship with money. And I feel like a lot of people do. There is this just constant perpetual cycle of, you know, having to keep up and just always feeling like you're going to be left behind. So I had to do a lot of just like really reframing the way that I look at money and also kind of educating myself because the thing is, bottom line, my parents did not know anything about personal finance. I mean, a lot of the reason why they didn't really accomplish the American dream was because they didn't know how to. There, there is no financial preparedness or financial education that is really made available to the public. And um, so I had to really kind of think outside of the box of what I was told because my parents just said, don't spend money and don't spend money and don't spend money. And that's how you obtain wealth. And as you can see, that was not the case with them. So I had to try something new when I got older and I had to start managing my own finances. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I had to do a lot in terms of reshaping the way that I see money. And it's a constant battle. <laughs> I feel like most people you know, go through that same hustle and grind every single day without realizing you're basically stuck 
in a wheel that never stops and you have to break the cycle. So that's what I had to do. So what resources have helped you manage your finances and really, you know, break that cycle that you were talking about? Google, Google. Like I I always tell people like Google is one of the most powerful things that you could do. If, if I don't know how to do something, I ask Google. (laughs) And on top of that, you know, just being able to Google was just the first place that I learned where and what resources to get my hands on. So it came to things like books because I, I truly feel like taking charge of your personal finances has everything to do with education. If you don't know better, how are you going to do better? So when I went on Google, I found a lot of resources from personal finance experts, you know, books, books were a big one. Blogs were a big one, you know, even going on Pinterest, because I also use that as a secondary form to Google. There are a lot of personal finance bloggers out there who give, you know, really straightforward money tips that are not overwhelming. And I think the issue that stops people from trying to learn more about personal finance is that there's this idea that it's really difficult, but just starting, you know, the bare bones basics it's it's quite simple. Like learning how to make a budget is very simple, but people just don't know how and they just need the guidance. So for me, it was just always going back to Google. And if I didn't know a question, I would I would Google it up and I would, you know, just read. I would spend a lot of time reading. I would read through books, um, lots of personal finance books and things like that, that really kind of helped me, made me feel more in control and gave me a better idea of what to do to dig myself out of these really crappy financial situations. So for everybody else too, you guys really just knowledge is power. I mean, we say that all the time, but it's the same thing with personal finance. Yeah. I, like I, like I told you, like, I'm like so bad with money and I've never really taken the time to like, look up how to like be better at managing my finances. And, you know, because of that, like, I feel like I kind of wasted my twenties, not investing, not saving, And now I'm in my early thirties and I'm like, just now just, you know, trying to play catch up and, um, trying to get my finances in order. So, yeah, but you know, you're not alone. Like, I feel like everybody who is around your age, our age, I don't want to act like, you know, we're different ages, (laughs) but everybody around our age constantly has this imposter syndrome or this like sense of regret. You know, when I was in my early twenties, I should have started investing, but you didn't know better. You know, you were fresh out of high school. You were just trying to, you know, go to college. That was like your main focus. And unfortunately finance is not taught. It's not taught in the public education system. It's also not even taught in college unless you become like a business major or something. So you didn't know, like, that's not your fault. And I feel like, you know, I, I have to emphasize to a lot of people because the way that this world works, especially with the way capitalism works is that it does this really great job at pointing fingers at you that you didn't work hard enough that you were you were uneducated and you should have known better and all of the blame gets put on your shoulders but the reality is you know like the public education system did not teach us so where there is ignorance how is how are people going to do better it wasn't any of our faults but unfortunately it is our fault to kind of fill in those missing holes that the public education system left wide open for us. We got to fill them and we got to, you know, take control of it because at the end of the day, I think if anything, this pandemic taught us that the government does not have our backs because when everybody lost their jobs, when everything closed up, people were, so many people were on unemployment assistance for the pandemic. And it just really went to show that, you know, like the government literally does not care about us. And so while we were thrusted into this place of existence where we have to hustle in order to survive, we are responsible for that. We can't just depend on the government for handouts, even though we should. That's the craziest part is that this country should try to keep its people alive, but instead it finds it okay with basically starving a lot of those people to death. So it it had nothing to do with you. I think it's just kind of something where we need to try to carve out the time and energy on our own time after work and after school to just kind of learn some things here and there. So again, like, you know, going on Google or going on Pinterest and just Google up how to start a budget. It's really that simple. It's just the hardest part is getting started. Yeah. I know it can be overwhelming. Like it's, it's overwhelming for me, but like, no, where do I start? But what are some top tips for saving money that have worked for you without necessarily compromising your lifestyle too much? 
Oh, okay. So I've got a lot of opinions on here. I feel like a lot of people, you know, try to let me into this like purely personal finance space. Like I'm a financial educator. I I don't give those kinds like I mean I can give those tips here and there, but I love that you said like especially without compromising your lifestyle because like a lot of the info that's out there, a lot of financial educators are like don't buy coffee every single morning. That's the reason why you're poor. Um, you know, like just don't borrow loans, you know, just pay for school completely out of pocket. And if you can't afford it, then that's on you. Just like really terrible advice. But for me, like my belief system is that like, it really is internal. So a lot of it, you know, um, is just getting your FOMO under control, like that fear of missing out, you know, the way that our, our culture is, especially with social media, we are literally indoctrinated into trying to buy whatever it is that the person next to us has. You know, we always want to be a part of something bigger than us. We want to feel connected to a community, right? And so we often do that with things, with clothes, with shoes, with makeup, with hair. And the biggest thing is, you know, you kind of shake that mindset. And I know in some ways people are going to be like, oh, well, that really is changing up my lifestyle. It's it's kind of something where like, yeah, it's it's the internal work. And so for me, like the the best thing that was most effective to get that fear of missing out under control was unfollow brands on social media and influencers who make you feel like you have to make a purchase or else if you don't, you're going to be left out. Like there's a lot of anxiety and I think people don't really question the intentions of where those purchases come from. You know, if you're buying something for yourself, you should, you, you know, you should love it. You should be excited for it. But a lot of times we wind up making these purchases that actually make us feel anxious. They don't make you feel good. They make you feel guilty. They um, make you feel insecure. Um, If you're making purchases from that place, you know, it's, it's obviously at that point, you're not making that purchase for you. You're making that purchase for other people to be accepted by other people. You know, it, it makes it easier just by hitting the unfollow button. If there are brands who you feel like are overwhelming you with like their marketing messaging, you can step back. You're not breaking up with anybody. And I think that's the part where we feel a little bit too comfortable with our social media feeds is that we're so like our minds are literally numb from our social media feeds and you do need to shake it up. Maybe it's good to unfollow some of those influencers. Maybe it's good to unfollow some of those brands on social media. You should be following people who make you feel good, who inspire you, who motivate you to improve the quality of your life, not drive you into debt because of this pair of shoes that they're peddling at you, you know, that are probably not even in your budget. So that's like the biggest thing. And I feel like for a lot of people, consumerism is their lifestyle. So it is really difficult to say, like, how do we not make positive impact on our financial situation without compromising your lifestyle? Consumerism is a culture for a lot of people. And that's kind of something that we need to bring more awareness to is who are you without your clothes and your shoes and the things that you own, the car that you drive, the house that you live in with or the house that you live in? How do you identify yourself when all of that superficial stuff is stripped away? And I think that's like just the biggest thing that I, you know, encourage people to really probe because people really think it's like, oh, you know, don't buy coffee, you know, every morning, maybe just do it every other morning, but that's not going to change it. It's, it's a mindset thing. And that's the most powerful thing because once you become immune to people online who are peddling products to all of, you know, the, the advertisements you see on Instagram, once you're immune to that, you're in so much more control of the way that you consume. And you are much more aware and you have more clarity on making better financial decisions. So, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the best tip that I have. Yeah. I mean, what you said about consumerism being a lifestyle made me think of Instagram influencers and how they're constantly buying new things or maybe getting things for free for the most part. And then, you know, constantly sharing that with their audience every single day, like buy this, buy that, you know, swipe up. I never wanted to be that type of content creator because I know just how, I don't want to say toxic, but just how overwhelming that can be to some people. Not everyone can afford that or wants that or wants to buy things every day. So I'm conscious of that. And I never wanted to be that type of person. And that, that was uh, something that like, I really, you know, tried to stop doing last year, especially. So yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up because that is really important. I mean, if someone is making you feel bad about not having the newest Dior bag or whatever, the newest summer shoes, you know, just 
unfollow or mute them or just remember that, you know, they do this for a living and that lifestyle, you don't, you don't need to have that lifestyle. I know that's easier said than done. Uh, I would know because I'm constantly on Instagram and TikTok and I am definitely a victim of like the constant consumption cycle. Even if I'm not promoting it on my Instagram, like I'm still like buying behind the scenes. Um, So that goes into my next question about fast fashion. I feel like fast fashion has gotten a lot worse since TikTok, but maybe that's just my imagination. Maybe it was always this bad, but I feel like trends nowadays are just, they have like a shorter life cycle like things will go I think things are trendy for like a week and then we have something new that we need to buy so what are your thoughts on like fast fashion being this necessary evil for people on a budget (laughs) (laughs) I could write a whole entire novel maybe like a whole series um on this if I could try to kind of like summarize I I really think you know, like the question is like, is fast fashion really like a necessary evil? I think it's, I mean, to, to dilute that, I mean, I guess, yeah. Like to give you a simple question or to give you a simple answer, because realistically, if we were to wipe fast fashion off of the board, that would only leave us to purchase from like luxury brands, from designers and from ateliers and people can't afford that. And so you know, me coming from this, you know, working class background, I was struggling to present myself in a way that didn't look, for lack of a better word, poor. And I think there's like the way that we view poor people in this society is also partly the issue because we're now kind of trekking into this whole classism topic. The problem starts with the way that we view class. Fashion should really just be a way that we should express ourselves. But the reality is, is that most of these fashion trends, they start on the runway. They're created by luxury designers. And the people who have access to those clothes, they are wealthy people like the Kardashians, right? So once those people wear it, once you see Kim Kardashian or like Kylie Jenner out on the street wearing something, all of these fast fashion companies start to rip off those styles and they make it accessible for the rest of the world, for the working class people. Because, you know, I just, I feel like if you are a working class person, like it's, This terrible idea that you sit with that like you can't afford style, that you can't afford to be fashionable. And that is, you know, that's the part where fast fashion has its place in, you know, making working class people not feel invisible anymore to, you know, like let them have this one thing to enjoy, to make them feel good about themselves. Because, you know, the reality is, is when you when you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you are more motivated to do things you're you're motivated to you know really go out there put, like put your footprint on the world um and you can't do that if you are wearing stuff that you don't feel good in so it's like that's where i kind of feel like fast fashion isn't is a necessity um just because of the way that we you know we have different classes in the society you know we have the wealthier people we've got the ruling class we've got the elites um then we've got the middle class which is disappearing and then we've got the working class and so how are working class people supposed to function normally if they're made insecure just simply for you know not having the money to have a f- like fashionable clothes so that's kind of the struggle that i'm stuck in between but i i honestly believe that you know, the better question is why is there no ethical consumption under capitalism? Because the very nature of capitalism is to consume. Capitalism cannot survive if people stop consuming. That That is like also that's a problem. So it's just kind of like now we realize that capitalism is not sustainable. And fast fashion is one of the biggest industries that contribute to a lot of waste, um, a lot of environmental problems. Um, but that's because we're being pushed to buy all the time. And, you know, realistically, if you look at the statistics, I think it was like about 80% of purchases made in any household. Um, it is, it is influenced by a woman. And so it makes a lot of sense why all of these companies are always marketing towards women. And then that intersects with things like like misogyny and feminism. You know, why are women so easily swayed and convinced to buy things because they're influenced by other people? Like, that's a whole other thing in itself. But just, you know, like to kind of throw that all together, you know, like really the problem is that 
capitalism does not make for a sustainable fashion environment. If you want fashion to participate in capitalism under you know the way that our economy operates you do need luxury brands because they're the ones who start the trends and you do need the fast fashion trends the, the fast fashion brands because the majority of those people who are purchasing from those fast fashion brands they are working in middle class people so we kind of under capitalism we need both there's there's no way it's it's so difficult to kind of answer that question. But yeah, consumption is going to continue going up and continue going up. And even if we do start to promote and consume from ethical companies, then the problem is with ethical products being produced, the price goes up too. So if if the standard now becomes ethical brands with these prices going up, who's going to be able to afford those prices? See, like that's just, it just leads to another problem. So it it. It's like, I don't know, we're like stuck at a moot point. Yeah, I think that capitalism is inherently self-destructive and we're seeing that unravel, like especially now. You're right about the middle class disappearing. I feel like now more than ever, people need that universal income. So I feel like capitalism just, you know, self-destructs and we need to like transition to something else. (laughs) That's not going to happen, but... I mean, I, I do have hope because... You know, a lot of people will challenge me and say, like, well, if not capitalism, then do you believe in communism or do you believe in socialism? Um, and then it just becomes this like really radicalized, you know, debate. I I don't I'm not here saying like, oh, yes, we should convert to communism or convert to socialism. But the reality is, is that under any economic system, when it is at an extreme, it hurts people. You know, people always think that only communism kills people, that only socialism kills people, and that capitalism is this godsend economical system, but it's killing people here. It really is. It's forcing people to consume until they are broke, and then they become homeless, and then they become invisible, and they just die. And it's it's honestly, it's disgusting, but, you know... Um, I think the only way that we can really start to really make change is to incorporate activism into your lifestyle. Like that's the only thing we need more socialist policies that really take care of the people. You know, if we had more tax reform so that we could actually tax billionaires, um, that would actually cause a trickle down effect where corporations would then be restricted. They would have to make changes. They'd have to pivot and they would have to now, you know, move with a world that is changing. So it really just boils down to policy. Policy is a big thing because we need to integrate more of those socialist policies for the people and then kind of slowly move away from what is late stage capitalism. Like our economy, it's bloated, you know, just like the military budget is bloated. There's a lot of, you know, money in circulation that is just simply in the wrong places, in the wrong hands. Mm -hmm. And we need to start, you know, really challenging that. Why is it that the top 20 millionaires or billionaires in this country are, they own, now don't quote me on this, but I know the percentage was like between 60 to like 80% of the wealth in circulation in this country. Yeah, I saw that. It's a really high percentage. Yeah, it's terrifying. And of course, then you know that these billionaires own these corporations. They own these businesses that are hypnotizing us into buying their products. We're forever falling victim to them. So Mm -hmm. we really just need to start by attacking all of this, you know, on a political level, um, because really only, you know, it's not sustainable for people's wallets to only um, consume from ethical brands. It's just way too expensive right now, you know, um, because with with capitalism, brands need to be able to profit off of big profit margins. And so when you create profit margins, you have to cut corners somewhere. So if you're cutting corners, you're either not paying your employees fair wages or you are selling really crappy products that are marked up at a high price. You know, there's exploitation to be had somewhere. So then when you get into ethical brands under capitalism, because it is so expensive to produce ethically, then you wind up exploiting the consumer by having a high profit margin because you have to rack up the prices, right? you know, yeah. for all of that, you know, ethical production. And so it, it, that's why it's just like, just being that person to, you know, say like, um, you should only consume from ethical companies. That really is a privilege in itself because not everyone can afford that kind of lifestyle. It's expensive. I agree. Yeah. I don't even know of any sustainable ethical brands besides reformation, which 
I don't like them. (laughs) (laughs) But aside from that, are there any other sustainable ethical brands that you know of? That's, that's it. That is the question. Cause it's like, I'm trying to find them too. You know, there, there, there's a lot of them, but they aren't up to speed. Like they're, they're not on the level of like, you know, big brands like Zara or Target or H&M, you know, they're not household names. They're not made accessible. Like, honestly, I could not even give you that answer. You know, the only way that I feel like I, I can ethically consume from a, a very like attainable place is thrifting. I try to thrift as much as I can, especially for basics, like white t-shirts and like jeans, because I love to distress my own jeans. So for things like that, I will thrift as much as I can or go on Poshmark. Um, But I still try to thrift locally just to kind of, you know, not have to deal with all the packaging and all of that stuff that also impacts our environment too. Um, But that's, that's the best thing. I don't know if at this point I would even want to recommend ethical brands because I just kind of feel like it's putting a band-aid over a broken glass window at this point. Are there any other fashion brands that you like to shop on a budget? Yeah, actually. Um, so for me, on top of thrifting, because uh, I try to mix up my wardrobe, um, again, with the basics, the basics come from thrifting. But, you know, there are trends that you want to keep up with. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's, it's you know, you want to keep up with things every so often here and there and not get carried away and, you know, just have a closet full of trendy stuff. But that's where kind of like the fast fashion brands come into play where, you know, if there's like a specific trend, like I know that the corsets were a big thing because of Kylie Jenner. Um, and you can get those kinds of corsets from places like Zara and H and M. Um, you know, there's also target targets really coming up in terms of like their style for, you know, people who don't want to be like too edgy or too bold, but it's still like really tasteful and really fashionable and still with the times. Mm-hmm. Um, so target's a big one, um, in terms of like online, online stores, I do like misguided. I feel like they are pretty, they're, they're pretty on top of trends and everything's pretty affordable. I think what's tricky is just with fast fashion, there's like always like sizing issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if, but yeah, it's, it's so, I remember you were telling me too about like the whole Zara thing um, where yeah. Zara intentionally size, like does not pay attention to their sizes to get you to buy more because it doesn't fit. Ah! Yeah. Well, I think what the, I, I think what it is, is that um, these clothes are produced on such a like tight deadline because of the trends they have like a smaller lifespan or shorter lifespan so um because these uh clothes are being manufactured so quickly there's not a lot of attention being had on the sizing so now when i go into zara like i'll look at like a top and you know i'm usually like a extra small or small and it literally looks like it could fit like a kid (laughs) that's how tiny it is and I'm like okay well you know I'll I'll get a large whatever but then like who are these clothes fitting like who are these clothes supposed to like fit and I get that the cropped trend is in right now but like that's just a little too much right right it's just I don't I don't know who they're selling these products towards because girl I'm a small medium a large and an extra large I don't know what I I am anymore and it's it's terrible um but I think you just kind of, you try. And I, I feel like if something doesn't fit, you need to go back and return it because I know so many people who will buy so much, like they'll order online and then they will be like, it doesn't fit. And they just wind up keeping it in their closet and it just never gets worn. That's what um, I do. It's because I shop a lot of like Australian retailers, like Princess Polly. Oh yeah. And so, you know, it just, it takes a while to get to like ship it back. And so I'm pretty lazy. I'm not going to do that. So I figured, you know, I might as well just like either keep it or try and sell it on Poshmark. I do sell a lot of things on Poshmark. I sell clothes, shoes on Poshmark, but um, I need to do better about selling the stuff that doesn't fit on there too. Yeah. I mean, it, honestly, it takes a lot of time, you know, to sell things on on places like Poshmark or, you know, yeah. to list it, um, you know, on places like OfferUp or something. It's a lot of time and effort that a lot of people don't have. Mm -hmm. Um, and as for like, you know, by consuming from like another country, like what gets tricky with that is that even if you return it, you're not even really getting your money back. Cause you have to, oftentimes you have to pay for the return shipping and (laughs) it's like international shipping. It's like $30. You're trying to just return a shirt that costs you 15 bucks. (laughs) And that's why I haven't done it because I just feel like it's such a hassle and I might as well just keep it. And who cares if it's like really tight and gives me a muffin top, like who cares? (laughs) (laughs) 
right? My, I think my rule of thumb for that is if I'm looking at something and like the sizing isn't clear or like that brand, you know, the, the sizing chart is not applicable to all their size or all their styles. Um, if it's kind of something that is going to have more of a, it needs more of a custom fit. Like if something is going to be tighter around the waist or like looser around the bust, then you have to also factor in like, is this going to fit my bust? Or like, who is this designed for? Is this someone who has a bigger chest or a smaller chest? And in that case, maybe it's not a good one to buy because it doesn't matter how cute it is. If it doesn't fit, it's not going to be flattering. (laughs) So um, for me, like I always try to kind of check myself on like, how risky of a buy is this going to be? Like, is the likelihood of this fitting my body (laughs) going to actually be worth me purchasing? Like I will shoot my shot and like see if it fits. Or if it's something, you know, it looks cute on the mannequin, but it's probably not going to look cute on me, then I just don't waste my time. And it sucks because, again, there's like that whole like fear of missing out. Like, oh, what if it does fit? But what if it doesn't? Oh, but what yeah. if it's going to like, I would look so cute in that. It's just like you have to learn how to how to get that FOMO under control and just like say no to things where it feels like it might not fit. <laughs> yeah, no, good call. I mean, it doesn't help that, you know, these retailers are also like super inexpensive, too. So I'm like, all right, well, it's $20, but then like it adds up <laughs> when it's yeah. like $20 for like multiple tops that don't fit. Right. Yeah. Like, and it doesn't help too, because these companies, they are like, oh, you get free shipping if you spend at least $75. And it's like, yeah. for me, I have to also check myself on it because, you know, we always want the free shipping, even though sometimes you wind up spending more to get the free shipping. Um, like for me, I will be like, okay, I, I only want like two shirts from this company. That's going to be like a total of like 40 bucks. And then shipping is going to be 10 bucks. It's going to be like a total of 50 bucks for me to buy those two shirts rather than me add more stuff to my cart and then wind up spending like $80. And then a lot of that stuff doesn't even wind up fitting. So I try to look at it this way, you know, don't succumb to the whole free shipping thing. Like try not to add things to the cart because it's practical because you're actually not saving money that way. Like brands want to trick you into thinking that, you know, you're saving money that way just because you get free shipping. But a lot of times too, shipping for them, it does not cost anything, especially because they are shipping things out in volume. Um, Usually they get discounts from like shipping carriers too. So you're the one who winds up spending more just to get the free shipping that only costs them $3 to ship. So. So we're being duped. (laughs) You're being duped. I mean, like, I think that's like the whole lesson in all of this is that everything is a trick. (laughs) So I like that um, mindset that you just said about, you know, not falling for the free shipping. I know that, you know, myself and a lot of other people don't like paying for shipping because that's something that we feel like we can just get for free. Like why pay for it? If you, if like you can just get it for free, you know, it feels like more of a waste of money. And that's, and that's the thing about, you know, the way that we also perceive value. Like, um, for me, when I was working, um, in retail, you know, you kind of see what the actual, um, the wholesale prices are, um, versus what the retail price is. And, you know, like, of course, um, this is not going to be worth that much. It's, it's not worth that much when you look at the wholesale price or the bulk price, but then like, there's like this insane markup and that's what they do to kind of compensate. And like, they're really good at being like, I know that there's a lot of brands that will do this online. They will say their whole website is 50% off and we love a good sale, right? So we're like, Ooh, the whole site's 50% off. But then if you look closely, a lot of the stuff that the, that they're pricing it at is like, it's a shirt that's like $50. um, And then they slash it down to that 50% off. So it's $25, but they're intentionally inflating those prices so that they can trick you into thinking that it's a sale, but it's actually not. They're normally selling it at $25 and they're telling you that it is a sale. People love, you know, to hear the word sale, but it's like, it's not really a sale when you think about it. Yeah, they're marking that up. Yeah, my first job uh, was working at Macy's in the juniors department. So I've had a glimpse of just like how that works, how that whole process works. Right. Like we had sales. But like the stuff was already like super marked up anyway. So the sale was basically what you should have been paying to begin with. Right. And it, it's just crazy because like for me, you know, a lot of people like I, I feel like I am very uh, radical with the way that I like purchase because like things like 20% off or 30% off that does not excite me. It doesn't because I'm like, I know that th- like with inflated prices, like this is literally not that's nothing. It's not a sale. When you start looking at like 50 to 60 or 70% off, then it's like, okay, that might be a deal. But then you also have to question, like, look at the original retail price. 
is it actually a sale or are they again selling it to you at the price that it should have been this whole time? So I, I, you know, like, I feel like people need to really start looking at that more and just not get tricked because a lot of the reason why we buy stuff is because we always think it's a good deal. That's how we wind up like getting this like closet that is packed to the brim of stuff that we don't even wear, or we don't even know exists anymore. Like, have you ever cleaned out your closet and you find like this, this, you know, top and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot that I had it. It still has a tag on it and stuff. They're tricking you into over consuming. You only wear like. 50% of what's in your wardrobe actually. So I recently cleaned out my closet and I can't tell you just the amount of clothes that I got, that I just had to get rid of clothes that I just probably wore like once. Like I felt so bad, but like, (laughs) I I don't know how to stop it. Like I know that I'm not going to stop consuming because I'm being realistic with myself. Like I know that I'm just going to keep shopping all of us are guilty of that though. Yeah. You know, it's it's really difficult to not consume in this world. So, I mean, I wouldn't even fault yourself too hard. It's just like more of, you know, bringing back into your awareness like who is making you consume? Are you trying to buy this because you want to buy it or is it because you are being marketed to? Are you being told that it's a good um it's a good sale or are you told that like this will make you look cool or that, you know, you'll be one of one of them if you get it? Like, you know, I always kind of have that internal dialogue with myself before I check out. Is this something that I really want for me? Or is this something that I really want because I want to impress other people? Like, that's just the biggest thing. And um, yeah, I think that's, you know, when it comes to things like style, you know, I feel like our style is always ever changing. So it doesn't make sense to um, buy so much in volume because I feel like the thing is, you know, trends only last for like one season. That's the way that fast fashion designs this stuff. So, you know, if you like a certain trend, it wouldn't make sense to buy like 10 of those things like bell bottom jeans or something, you know, buy like 10 pairs when you know that next season you're not going to be wearing any of those. So maybe just get like one or two if you want to get really crazy. Um, And that's kind of the way that I really cut down with, um, you know, overpacking my wardrobe, keep the trending, the the consumption for the trendy stuff at a minimum. And I know it's like really difficult, but you're not going to touch it next season. Good call because I, when I was cleaning out my closet, like I threw out this like mustard yellow shirt that I definitely bought like a few autumns ago when it was trending and I probably just wore it once and then never looked at it again. (laughs) So yeah, don't buy like, like stick to the classics, the basics, buy one or two trending stuff if you absolutely love it, but no more than that. Right. Could you, could you imagine if you bought like 10 mustard tops? (laughs) I think part of it is me just, you know, wanting content for my Instagram. That's a big part. Definitely. But also it's a form of like retail therapy, which I know a lot of people can relate to. If I'm having a bad day, like it's just, it's like my fix, you know? Right. Right. And that, that just goes back to the whole, like our culture is consumerism, you know, like, um, I mean, I love to treat myself, but when it becomes when it gets to a certain point where your only method of coping becomes consuming, like that's where you're really going to get into really, really tricky waters with your budget. Um, I always tell people like, get a hobby. I, I literally mean that. I don't mean that as an insult, but like you need to have coping mechanisms other than just consuming. Cause it's just not sustainable. You know, you need to find something that you can actually take joy in, in growing. Um, And that isn't your closet. I would rather you find a hobby and grow that hobby, grow a skill set, then grow your closet because you cannot keep up with a closet that continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, when you're having a bad day and you run to buying stuff, you're really just kind of filling a void where no, no product, no article of clothing is going to fill that void because that's, that's a you thing. Like that's, that's that inner work stuff that can be better remedied through things like hobbies or self-care, you know, something as simple as, you know, a bath, taking a little bath um, and lighting some candles. Yeah. I, well, what if your hobby is Instagram or creating (laughs) (laughs) like, that's my hobby. Like, I I don't know. I mean, that's what I do in my free time. I just go on Instagram and TikTok, try to create. I hate to break it to you, but that's not a hobby. That's an addiction. (laughs) You know, we need to, we need to kind of disconnect from our phones every so often. Cause you know, like social media is also a kind of consumerism too. We're consuming media. We're consuming content. Um, we're ingesting all the time and we're not allowing ourselves time to process and digest and, you know, 
purge it out, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better word, if I mm-hmm. stick to the whole eating analogy. But yeah, social media is another method of consumption. It's just free. Um, that's also kind of the reason, like psychologically, there are a lot of things that connect here when you're having a bad day. Um, you know, you go to hit up the stores and you go buy something nice for yourself. Well, if you're having a bad day at work and you can't necessarily clock out and just run to the store and buy something, you can pull out your phone and scroll through your feed. It's a way that we self-soothe. And um, that's a lo- because of, again, because of being born and raised under capitalism, that's the only way that we know how to remedy ourselves. And we need to do better about that because the the, the thing that sucks about capitalism is that you are so caught up in this cycle of consumption that it becomes mind numbing and you lose yourself in that cycle. You know, that's why I'm always encouraging people. Like I'm really big on encouraging people to just start a hobby because with all the time that you spend on online shopping, you could be doing, you could be taking up a hobby that is really filling your cup emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And that is going to make you feel a lot more better. And that's going to be the thing that's going to fill the void that you feel that you're constantly trying to fill when you go to the store and you go buy something, you know, you get a rush when you bring something new home, but after that it's gone, that, that endorphin rush is gone and you have to go buy something else. It's like a drug almost like you're spending so much money trying to get your fix that is never going to be appropriately addressed. That is exactly how I feel. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I feel like a lot of people aren't, aren't really aware of, you know, that social media is a form of consumption. So, and it gets you to consume more in terms of money. You wind up buying more stuff, the more that you scroll through your feed. And especially with things like Instagram now, where you see an ad every, what is it? Three or five posts. I don't even know anymore. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you can't turn that off. So you're forever exposed to marketing. I can't get away from social media because I'm a social media manager. So I'm, I can't unplug. Like I constantly have to be on social media and like, not just like consuming it, but creating content and like understanding what works, being an actual practitioner. So I I don't know how to like, (laughs) it is, it is is tricky. Like I, I also find myself, um, it's difficult to unplug, but, um, For me, again, I just go back to the like, if you find a hobby that you really love, you will spend less time on your phone as a result. You know, like all that free time, you're going to be pouring into your hobby or your interest and you're going to be less likely motivated to pull out your phone just because you're bored or you need, you know, you need to self-soothe. So there's that. And then I also limit um, my social media time. So after like, I have like a bedtime routine. So once it's like eight or nine o'clock, um, I'm getting, I'm, I'm going to go take a shower. I remove my makeup off and, you know, like I do that until like nine or 10 o'clock and then I read a book and then I go to bed. So it's like also like having the know-how to restrain yourself from your phone time. Um, and just kind of like carving some time in your schedule every single day to have a ritual for yourself. I think that works wonders. Like, I'm not saying like everybody needs to run out and just like find a hobby ASAP. But even just being able to better manage your phone time on your free time, because there, even though, I mean, like I also work, you know, with social media too, so I know how it can be, but we have to set boundaries with ourselves um, all the more rigorously, more so than other people whose jobs aren't surrounded by social media. Um, we have to be able to put our foot down and like literally put down the phone and spend more time, you know, devoting that time to ourselves. Like, I like that you mentioned reading a book. Like I definitely don't do enough of that, which is really embarrassing. Like the book part is key. So what are you currently reading? Ooh, um, well, I actually just got done um, reading this one book called Winners Take All. It's um, by Anand. I don't know his last, I can't pronounce it. It's Giranand. Um, but it's, it's a pretty dry and boring book. I I admit that, you know, for some people, they just want to read like the hunger games or a fiction novel. This one is about capitalism and it's about, um, yeah, it's all about consumption. It's about, you know, corporate businesses and billionaires and, um, why philanthropy actually doesn't change the world. It actually 
you know, contributes in pretty bad ways. So I just got done reading that, which was really eye-opening and very frustrating. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, what is it called? Um, I think it's called Redemption Capitalism. I think that's what it's called. But- oh, spicy. I like that. I like. I mean, I don't like that, but I think that's what it's called. It's something capitalism, like sort of like corporations trying to redeem themselves, sort of. Yeah, and it's it's just interesting too because also with like things like ethical brands and stuff, they say like, oh, we give back, we give back. Yeah, um, I find that interesting because it's like. For example, Levi's just had this really big campaign about, um, you know, the way that they, you know, we need to save the world. Like it was, it was a whole entire campaign, like telling consumers that we need to be the ones to consume ethically. And it's like, well, excuse me. Um, you are like a billion dollar company. Um, it's like, who are you trying to fool? <laughs> right, right. And you know, like <laughs> you'll go to a store and you'll check out and then it like, you know, the little the card scanner will ask you, like, do you want to donate to charity? Do you want to donate to charity? How about you, Target? Like, why are you asking me to donate to charity? Yeah, exactly. Definitely have to check out that book because that that sounds interesting. It's so good. It will make you so mad. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me more about like your self-care routine because I I like to ask this question to like all the people who uh, go on the podcast. Like, what do you do for self-care? That's a big one. I, it's really disconnecting from my phone. Um, disconnecting from my phone. Uh, I also like to dabble with things like tarot. Um, so I love to do tarot cards. Um, I feel like if I'm really stuck in life, I just kind of ask the cards a question. It gives me, you know, some really good insight. You know, I get to probe my own brain, you know, for people who don't believe in like the woo woo stuff. Uh, it's literally the, the cards just kind of trigger you to, um, think about stuff that's already on your mind and look at it from a different perspective. So I love to do that. I feel like that is a form of like spiritual work that I do to kind of really get me centered and to, um, kind of look at my situation from a, from a different perspective. Plants, plants are a big thing for me. I love to take care of my plants where I, it, it's funny because earlier this year, I drank that plant Kool-Aid that everybody was drinking during the pandemic. So I started to get into plants And I started consuming a lot, you know, for the same reason of FOMO, you know, people were like, oh, this, this plant is really rare. And (laughs) I was like, oh my God, it's rare. I need it. I didn't even like it. (laughs) So I've whittled down, you know, like my plants and now I'm just kind of taking care of the plants that I actually do love. Um, but that, yeah, that's a form of self-care to me because it teaches me how to take care of things. It teaches, it reminds me to take care of myself basically. Nice. Yeah. I actually bought some fake plants. <laughs> so I, I definitely should buy some real plants. That way I could, you know, do what you said, like take care of something else. that's not mine. And then, you know, that'll sort of remind me to take care of myself too. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, try not to get carried away the way that I did. Cause I, I got stuck in that cycle too. It was like buying plants every day. And I had, I literally had like 60 plants and I was like, I don't know how I got here. And now taking care of my plants has become a full-time job. So, um, yeah, just get one plant, get one plant. I feel like, yeah, plants are definitely, um, a form of self-care. I would say I will fight anybody who doesn't agree with me. (laughs) I need to buy some plants. I need to get rid of the fake ones. They're just so fake. I mean, yeah, like it works for decor, but also it's just like, you don't get the same experience um, of like taking care of that plant. So how has like the past year changed your financial habits? Did you do anything different? Did you save more money? Yeah. um, I feel like it, uh, the 2020 pandemic um, has helped and hurt me in in several different ways in terms of money. Like, because we were all going out less, you know, I I feel like a lot of us were saving more money in that respect because you're not going out to go to dinner. You're not buying tons of drinks at the bar and that adds up, you know, you're not spending money on gas or, you know, Ubers. So I was saving money that way. But then on the other side of things, I did indulge in retail therapy. So I did a lot more online shopping just out of sheer boredom. And I feel like, you know, the pandemic, especially in the first couple of months, it was really stressful for a lot of people. And it really just highlighted that we don't have very good coping mechanisms when it comes Mm -hmm. to dealing with stress. Um, And we couldn't avoid that because we were literally stuck on lockdown. So for me, I admit that even though I, you know, people say that I'm money savvy, I still I fell prey to um, online shopping and I still bought quite a bit of stuff. Um, But then also the good part about it was 
you know, I was also made aware of my budget because you're sitting at home and I work from home and I'm always on my computer. So that gave me more time to devote to really looking at my budget from a really critical perspective and facing it every single day. So even though I was consuming a lot more, the fact that I was really honing in on my budget and my financial goals allowed that to not really put a big gargantuan hole in my budget. It didn't like sabotage my my financial goals or anything like that because I was able to kind of maintain the balance between like treating myself, albeit a lot, I was doing it a lot, but then also like hitting my financial goals, like paying off credit cards and things like that. So yeah, it was it, it was kind of both. It was like it did damage, but also helped me at the same time. So um, I realized that for a lot of people, they probably don't have the same experience with the pandemic. They probably just spent a lot of money online or maybe they didn't spend money at all. But I kind of had a, a taste of both. <laughs> yeah, no, I can relate to that because I definitely use that time to pay off credit cards. So a month before the lockdown, I was in a terrible financial situation. Like I had tons of credit card debt and um, this is really embarrassing, but I even overdrafted my bank account at one point, which luckily I was getting paid that same week, but like how embarrassing. Um, but luckily, you know, I was able to get my finances back on track and actually pay off some credit cards, paid off nearly $10,000 in credit card debt. Wow. Is, <laughs> go <which> you. Is, <laughs> which is sort of like out of character for me because I, like I said, I'm really bad with money. I've never been good at saving money or sticking to a budget. So it took a pandemic and I was definitely one of the privileged ones during the pandemic, like I still had my job. So I was able to pay off credit cards while not, you know, consuming as much. So that really helped. And then I realized, you know, where's my money going? It was going to Starbucks. It was going to Uber Eats. It was going to lunch, you know, prior to the pandemic, that is like, I was spending money on food for the most part when I should have just been cooking at home. Right. But I mean, also there's like, Going out to eat is a luxury that we love to spoil ourselves with because we don't want to cook. We don't. We just want tasty food. <laughs> so I don't. I don't fault you for that. But I'm. I'm. That's amazing that you paid off ten thousand dollars in debt. Like that's that's a lot to be able to pay off five figures of debt in less than a year is a really really big sizable goal that you should really be proud of because not not everybody can do that. Um, not everybody has a wherewithal or you know the um, patience and the discipline to do that. So you know, in, in that respect, you should really pat yourself on the back for that. I know you said that, you know, um, uh, you overdrafted your account and that was embarrassing, but I think that's happened to all of us, you know? So if that makes you feel less alone, um, everybody has overdrafted their bank account at some point and it sucks, but you were able to turn that right back around. So good on you. Good for you. Thank you. Well, I know you also do some investing or you've been talking about it. You talked about it in your uh, last podcast about crypto uh, and stocks. So did you want to talk a little bit about that? Stocks are stocks are crazy. Stocks are really important. I feel like especially for millennials, we're now getting to that age where we need to start really thinking about our future. Um, I also recommend, you know, Gen Zers to really take that seriously too. But I feel like, you know, they're they're kind of focused on other stuff right now because they're a little younger. But for us, you know, investing in your future is really important. And that's where investing in stocks and opening up a stock portfolio is really, really, really important. Because again, this country does not care about its people. And it doesn't care if you work and work and work until you're no longer able to work. It's not going to take care of you once you're at that point. So you need to have some sort of stream, like a, some sort of income stream to help you when you get to that age where you can no longer work like that anymore. Um, so, you know, what I'm getting into right now is basically the stock market and also the cryptocurrency market, which is a very interesting one. But I always recommend people to start by learning about stocks first, because once you learn everything about stocks, um, crypto becomes a lot easier to understand because it's, it's very similar, right? Um, but crypto is really, it's, it's really trendy right now. So I feel like, you know, uh, a lot of the reason why it's trendy is because, 
there's a lot of that FOMO um, happening. You know, you're seeing your you're seeing your friends invest in you know crypto. You're seeing a lot of people talk about Dogecoin, and you want part of that again because we don't want to be left out, right? But the the dangerous thing about crypto is that not a lot of it you know has the same financial backing as. Um, stocks and bonds do. So I'm always recommending that people learn about stocks first. So, you know, a really good way to do it is if your employer offers, you know, 401k, um, definitely take up on that offer because essentially what a 401k is, it's, it's like a retirement account that is sponsored by your employer. So what they will do is if you contribute to that 401k, you, um, they will basically match it and it's different for every employer, but they will match it to a certain amount. So that's essentially free money for your retirement. You know, if, if people have jobs where there is a 401k available, you need to go to your HR department and you need to start that right now. So they're usually going to deduct a portion of your earnings on your paycheck and that just goes straight into your 401k. So you're essentially building a retirement fund. Um, that has a variety of like stocks that are selected by your employer. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. But yeah, so if anyone has a 401k available to them mm-hmm. through their employer, they need to do that. If you don't, um, especially for people who are like independent contractors um, or say, yeah, their job does not have good benefits like that, then you need to start opening up a, a Roth IRA account, which is an individual retirement account. Um, so you can contribute to it Um, And then you can pick stocks and essentially just kind of pick and choose what you want and build your own passive income, you know, pay yourself in the future. That's essentially what is. And crypto kind of functions a very similar way, but it is a little bit trickier because now we're dealing with brand new forms of currency that aren't really backed yet. We also like, cause crypto is so new, it's only several years old. So we kind of don't know, we can make predictions, but it doesn't have the historical backing that the stock market does. So I know it is so tempting for people to jump on the crypto bandwagon, especially because there are like phone apps that make it so easy, but there's the same thing, you know, uh, there are phone apps with the stock market. And so I think people are kind of turned off by the stock market because it feels very like, I guess, like old and archaic. That's where we kind of need to, you know, kind of realize like, you know, crypto is really trendy right now. And I I personally feel like you should focus on stocks just to get the hang of it. Then look into crypto later when you have more disposable income, because I'm, I'm trying to do both. So I've, I've got a Roth IRA and I also am getting into crypto, um, which is also very, very, very overwhelming. And I feel like learning about stocks was a lot easier than learning about crypto because crypto is always like changing all the time. There's always new stuff coming up and people are always, you know, pressuring you to buy stuff. So I'm like, I'm just a big advocate of like, just learn stocks first. You don't even have to invest yet, but just learn about it first so that you can make a game plan. And then you know, start doing it when you feel like you have enough information to make you comfortable, like so that you can make your first steps with confidence. What apps do you use for investing? Um, so for for stocks, I use I'm, I'm like still in like the crypto mindset because I was oh, literally yeah. just researching crypto like uh, this morning. Um, but I I invest with Vanguard. Um, so it's a website and I believe they have an app too, but I, I use Vanguard. Um, and then there are other apps too, like for introductory investing, if you just kind of want to get your feet wet, there's Robinhood. So it's a phone app. You can just register an account and they will, there's like articles on there. So you can learn about investing and how it works. Um, it's a very easy and user-friendly interface. So it's, you know, for people who might not want to dip into, you know, things like Vanguard, cause I know that that's going to be more of like it's going to be more intense basically, but yeah, start with things like Robin hood and you can, you know, you can learn from that, invest a little bit here and there just so that you kind of understand how the game works. And then you can move into the more serious, serious stuff. So, um, yeah, that's what I use for stocks. And then as for crypto, there's crypto.com. That's not an app. That's a website. Um, but then they also, you can invest in crypto through Robin hood too. And then there is another app called Coinbase that you can use for crypto. All of these things are made so that it is accessible to consumers. 
So not like corporations and, you know, big businesses and, you know, billionaires who have people who can like, who have, who can manage their money, just people like me and you. So, you know, start with those apps. If you're the kind of person that gets overwhelmed by new stuff easily, start with the app. Um, If you want to get into crypto, again, Coinbase, if you want to get into regular good old stocks and bonds, um, look into Robinhood. Yeah, I've used Robinhood. It's really user-friendly. And I've also used TD Ameritrade in the past for buying stocks, but Robinhood just makes it so much easier. It's just right. friendly. Right. Yeah, I know. And it's like, I feel like the, the younger generations are like such suckers for like, like aesthetically pleasing, yeah. you know, easy to navigate user interfaces. Yeah. So that's where they really shine. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at... Um, you know, the services that are available on places like TD Ameritrade and like um, Vanguard, that's where those those kinds of brokerages really shine because you get more um, like freedom and more options to kind of, you know, do what you want with your investments. Whereas Robinhood is very plug and play. So yeah, start off with it first, but then you're going to realize that as you dip into it more and more that it's it's kind of restrictive. That's when you know you've outgrown the platform and you can kind of move on to bigger and better things. Yeah, I think the biggest issue I have with investing is just lack of knowledge. And I know I can just like Google it or whatever, but I feel like it's just hard to trust what resources are credible. Right. I'm just like overwhelmed by all the information out there. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, yeah, like um it's it's good that you know you're doing your research, but you know, I think a lot of people are now branching away from just Googling stuff because the way that Google works, it's just Whoever had the highest page views is going to land on the results. And that always means that the information is credible. It's usually outdated and terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of people are, you know, using YouTube as a way to self-educate with um, things like investing in stocks and crypto. Um, There are also lots of personal finance educators on Instagram. So, you know, you might want to consider going on there and just kind of following some accounts. Because the thing is that when you're looking at these people, they have their skin in the game chances are they're not going to be like some really rich millionaire who is not relatable to your own personal situation. So, you know, following influencers who are in the um, personal finance space will really help because you get to see the way that this person is entering into the stock market and the crypto market um, from an everyday person, you know, like someone that is really more relatable to us and say a millionaire or billionaire would be, they're going to have a different strategy that. And then definitely Reddit too. There's a lot of Reddit communities of, um, you know, people who are helping new people get started with investing. There's so much information on Reddit, which it's just, it's crazy. And I, I love Reddit for, um, looking at investment, um, investment articles and, you know, just people sharing their own personal stories. So I feel very like supported by other people who are also doing it. You don't feel, you don't feel like scared and like alone because you see that other people are doing it and it's like, okay, that kind of settles my anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. I should check out Reddit for that and YouTube. Um, I found a few like personal finance people on, um, TikTok like that, I was like surprised. I'm like, okay, I could definitely use TikTok for this. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it's it, personal finance does really, really well in TikTok too. And it's because, you know, the minutes there are the, the length of the videos are like 15 to 30 to one minute. And I think now they've extended it to three minutes too, but they're really um, short videos that are easy to digest. Um, it's not overwhelming. So TikTok is also a really excellent place for people who tend to get overwhelmed really easily. They can just get little tips and tricks here and there. So that's an excellent place too. I, I can't believe I forgot about that. But yeah, TikTok's great. Yeah, that works for me because I get overwhelmed easily and I have a short attention span. So. <laughs> Most of us do who are active on social media. <laughs> I think a lot of us have a short attention span nowadays. Yeah, well, I think we ran out of time, but thank you so much for all of these tips. Where can everyone find you on social media? Yeah. Um, you can find me on Instagram. So Instagram.com slash the baller in a budget or at the baller in a budget. <laughs> um, and I'm also on, where am I at? I'm also on my own website, the baller in a budget.com. I also have my own podcast, um, the baller in a budget. So it is available on Spotify and, um, Apple podcasts. So if you guys also want to take a look at that, I am there, but mostly on Instagram. So yeah, you can find me there. Yeah, definitely check out her podcast. I was listening and it was really, really good. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate having this little conversation about all of all of the amazing stuff, fast fashion, capitalism. Mm-hmm.
Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, rate, or review. It would mean the world to me. As always, you can connect with me at Style Context on Instagram or Twitter. Go ahead and slide into my DMs. Would love to hear from you guys. And if you're a business owner who needs assistance with social media management, consulting, or content creation, visit channelyourinfluence.com to learn how you can work with me. Talk soon.